Man, what a powerful song. What an honest song about the journey of wanting to be found and also kind of getting lost uh, in the uncertainty in the world, the injustice in the world, and all the questions that come naturally to all of us. Well, today I'd like to give a warm horizon welcome to someone who's going to share their story and their journey to something similar. Can we give a warm horizon welcome to David Nasser? David, thanks for being here today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I want to just uh, tell you a little bit about uh, my story. And uh, what I love about the power of story is, is that it's just an opportunity, honestly, to um, begin conversations. I've shared this story that I'm about to tell you um, at least 10,000 times. I was thinking about it the other day. Someone in a podcast was asking me about it. Uh, like, how many times have you, have you shared this story? Do you ever get tired of telling this story? And, and, and I was telling them, I said, I, th I think what's amazing about it is that uh, you just kind of open up your, the circumstances of your life to someone as you tell them the story. And, and what it does is it actually, like, brings out um, their story. Because the beauty of a story is that um, I'm going to guess that I'm probably the only Iranian in the room. Anybody else? All right. But you're going to see some of the emotions and some of the circumstances of my life and the hardship and the things that happen as, as a point of connection with you because you can be from Ohio or you can be from Iran and still go through sadness, still go through confusion, still go through uh, loneliness, still go through great victory. And, and, and I hope that as I share my story that it reminds you of the circumstances of your life. And as I talk about it uh, from a faith perspective, and I, and I just kind of share with you a little bit about like what I've learned in, in my own perspective about God, that, um, that you maybe will look and consider how God has worked all throughout your life, uh, even when you sometimes don't recognize it as I did. I'm originally from the country of Iran, and in 1979, the Iranian Revolution happened. And when that happened, I was nine years old. And so from a nine-year-old's perspective, I don't remember a lot of the details of what happened. But I do remember just feeling like everything that felt very stable in my life and everything that felt very um, normal was being taken away. I remember those days. I remember the Iranian Revolution being a time of great uncertainty, not just for Iran, but for my family. My dad was high-ranked in the military in Iran. And so when the Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots kind of took over our country and overthrew the Shah of Iran, the king of Iran, I remember in those days in our army base where my father worked, just sensing just in the air around us that something was, was happening and it was not good. I went to school one day uh, in the very beginnings of the revolution, and I went to a military school in our army base. And uh, when I went to school, I remember them calling us to an assembly behind the school. So we all made our way to the uh, uh, back, and uh, I'll never forget a soldier came once everybody got quiet and um, got out a piece of paper and read the name of three students and asked me to come and stand in front of the whole student body. My name was one of the three that he read out. And I made my way to the front, and I'll never forget... The soldier didn't even wait for the other two and, and immediately um, took a gun out of a holster and pointed it, my, put, put it in my head and with his hands shaking, uh, started to quote the Quran and, and told me that he was going to end my life. When you're nine years old and, and something like that's happening, uh, you know, you don't really understand all that's happening around you. I didn't understand that there was a revolution. I didn't understand. I just remember as a kid going to school and, and something really scary happening to me. 
And I remember the school principal getting between me and the gun and asking him uh, to come back another day. And, you know, for all I cared, he didn't need to come back another day. And I went home and I, and I told my dad, my military father, you know, like what had happened. And that's the first time I remember, uh, I have a memory of my dad crying. And he sat me on his lap and, and he started to weep and he said, I'm sorry that happened to you. And, um, and he told me, he said, look, there's a revolution going on. They're making an example out of families like ours because of my position in the army. They're just basically like trying to instill fear to, to suppress oppression. And, and, then, and as he was explaining all of this to me, I remember my dad saying to me that uh, we were planning to escape. And honestly, because there was this revolution going on and it was a religious one, and because this man had quoted the Quran right before he pointed a gun at me, I just remember as a nine-year-old kid thinking to myself, I don't know what we've done to make God so mad at us, but apparently he's pretty mad at my dad and pretty mad at me, and apparently he wants us dead. And to me, escaping from Iran at that moment felt like we were escaping from God. We're trying to get as fast as we could, as far as we could, away from him. And I remember those days. I know most nine-year-olds don't think stuff like this, but I was nine years old when I just decided that I hated God. Most nine-year-olds don't think audacious thoughts like that, right? They think stuff like, I don't know, should I eat this crayon? All right, but I was nine when I decided that I hated God because I just felt like he went first. And I remember just being home for those few, few weeks and, and hearing my mom and dad kind of huddled in one corner and, and planning our escape. Before we could even implement our escape plan, I remember soldiers coming to our home and dragging my dad out of our home. And when I say dragging, what I mean by that is they were, they were taking my dad out of the house and my mom had my dad's leg just locked like this and, and she was just being dragged as, as they were taking my dad out. And she just kept screaming out loud, just really over and over again the same thing. She just kept saying, just kill him quickly, just kill him quickly. And when you're nine years old, you don't understand why your mom is begging these soldiers to kill your dad quickly. They took my dad finally, and my mom got my hand and my sister's hand and, and told us to pray. And, and my first memory ever of prayer was when my mom started to pray, and her prayer was over and over again the same thing. She just kept saying, just let him die quickly, just let him die quickly. And when the prayer was over, I asked my mom, I said, why, why are you saying that? And she explained. She said, look, your dad's best friend was taken to a park yesterday, the same park that they're taking him. And when they took him there, they tied him to a tree and they took a pair of pliers and they started with his fingernails and they worked their way in. And it took him about seven hours to slowly torture him to death. And we need to pray that your dad will be spared that and he won't be tortured slowly and he'll be killed quickly. And so when you're nine years old and you're praying to God, God, I don't know what we've done to make you so mad, but can you at least give dad a quick death? The last thing you think is that God is a wonderful God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so I just remember thinking, God hates us. And so because he hates us and he wants to take me out and he wants to take my dad out, I hate him. And isn't that true? Sometimes we have such an obstructed view because the circumstances of our life is all we see in front of us. And something happens and the circumstances of hardship or the circumstances of, of tragedy or the circumstances of something where everything that you knew was secure all of a sudden being robbed from you becomes something where it's bigger than you, and so you start to blame whoever you can. And in my mind, it was God's fault that we were having to leave. It was God's fault that my dad was being taken out of our home. And I remember my dad being taken out of our home, and a couple of hours later, him coming back and saying, they've given me a couple more weeks, but when they come back, I'm not going to be here. None of us are going to be here. And we put in front burner mode the need to escape. 
At that time, my mom had heart issues, and so we leveraged those heart issues to be able to maybe, you know, get out. We went to these doctors that my mom had been going to see, and we, we asked them, we said, look, if you'll help us escape from Iran, uh, we'll give you our home, our cars, our clothes, and everything that we own. And, and my dad kind of brokered a deal with these doctors. And so uh, my mom, a couple of days later, acted like her heart was really bothering her. It was all fabricated. And this ambulance came and got her, and they took her to the hospital. And my, doc, my mom went to the back room with these doctors, and they came back out, and they said that she needed emergency bypass surgery. And that the best way to, to treat her was for her to be taken immediately to Switzerland for this operation. And so we bought two-way airline tickets as though we were going and coming back for this fabricated story that we were going for the surgery that wasn't real. And I remember going to the airport and just holding my dad's hand in the airport. And his hand just kept shaking. And he kept saying to my mom, if they find out we're escaping, they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But they didn't. And we went up in the air, and we landed a couple of hours later. And when we landed, the ambulance got by, my, by, the airport, I mean by the airplane to have my mom be put in it from the stretcher. But she sat up, and instead uh, of being taken to the hospital, she said, my mom and dad said to these people that this was all fake, and this was all staged so that we could escape, and that instead they wanted, to be, they wanted to be taken to the American embassy so that they could plead our case so that they could maybe get political asylum, which is just a fancy way of saying we wanted to become refugees in America. But at that time, nobody was allowing Iranians into America. People were watching on TV how Iran was going through this revolution. And as the revolution was happening, they were burning the American flag and they were calling America the great Satan. But this just felt really, really at home because it wasn't like the Ukraine war where it's an ocean away or, or some of these other things that we see where something's going on in Sudan and we feel like, wow, that's, that's important, but it's an ocean away. This was very at home because 54 Americans had been held hostage from the American embassy in Iran. So some of you remember when every day Dan Rather would start the news by saying day 45 of the Iranian hostage situation. And then the next day it would be day 46 of the Iranian hostage situation. And every day Americans were waking up and they were watching these Americans that were held hostage there. And it was just everything, patriotism, cranked all the way up. And we need to go get them. And the Iranians were calling America the great Satan, burning the American flag. And so here we were, this Iranian family from the wrong place at the wrong time, stuck in Europe, in no man's land, trying to make it to America. And we weren't allowed. And for nine months, we tried every way we could. We tried illegally. We tried legally. We tried every way we could. And every day, my dad would go to the consulate, and he would just beg and, and try. And, and we actually moved from Switzerland to Munich, Germany, to, because we'd heard they were more sympathetic to, to cases like ours. And for nine months, we tried every way we could, and we just kept hitting a wall until one day, after nine months, my mom got us together for what she called her American idea. <laughs> She showed us this picture, uh, I'll never forget, of a, of a handsome guy, you know. It was kind of a, a handsome um, Duck Dynasty-looking fella, all right. And, and she said, I don't know if you know who this is, and I didn't know who he was. And she said, this is Jesus Christ. And since we want to go to America, we ought to ask him to let us into his country because he's American, all right. And so we decided at that moment that we were going to ask American Jesus to let us into his country. And I know some of y'all are laughing, but some of y'all are not laughing. Some of y'all are like, why is everybody laughing? Because you actually think Jesus is like some white American because you saw the Chosen series or whatever. And by the way, that was like shot in Texas. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is not like a white Republican who's about to like 
take the new Fox spot, you know, that Tucker Carson left, you know, like Jesus is more originally from my neck of the woods than y'all's neck of the woods. He's more camel dynasty than duck dynasty. Anyway, but so, so my mom kind of showed us this picture and she said, this is Jesus. And since we want to go to America, this is Christianity and we ought to pray. And, and, and we prayed and we asked Jesus to open the doors. And the crazy thing was we, we mentioned the name of Jesus in a prayer. And a week and a half later, all of a sudden, the doors that we couldn't open ourselves were opened. And we're finding our way to America. And I remember as a little kid just getting in a plane to come to America and thinking to myself, like, I hate religion because I saw it destroy my country. But, hey, Jesus, thanks for letting us into it. (laughs) And we came here, and we didn't move to Ohio. We moved to Texas, (laughs) y'all. And can you imagine, can you just imagine, like, patriotic Texan. Anybody here from Texas? Yeah, Texans love them some Texas. Their toast is twice as thick as everybody else's toast. They got T-shirts that say don't mess with Texas. They just, they just love that they're from Texas. But we didn't just move to Texas. We moved to Colleen, Texas, where the largest army base in the world is. And so can you imagine in that kind of environment, an Iranian family just coming right in? And instantly I found out just because we were in America, that doesn't mean that uh, things got safe. I mean, all of a sudden, we come here, and I'm a fish out of water. I got the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, the wrong language, the wrong everything. I walk right in, and I'm like, hello, I am David. And they're like, you are so going to get beat up today after school. (laughs) And that was me. I was the kid who every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone in the lunchroom. I was the kid who heard every nickname, every 7-Eleven joke, every turban joke. I got called bean dip, and I'm not even Mexican. I was like, you're not even accurate in your racism, you know? And we escaped halfway across the world to unplug from one kind of terrorism, physical, and plug into a whole other kind, emotional. And honestly, the weapon of mass destruction for emotional terrorism is just loneliness. And that was me for years and years. We eventually moved from Texas to Alabama, and it was just still the same thing. And I remember all these years just being the loner, the kid who was always a loner, the kid who always didn't feel like I blended in, the kid who every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone, and the kid who just thought we've escaped halfway across the world to find refuge as refugees, but it doesn't feel that way. And that was me until the day my freshman year in high school was about to start. I was sitting in my room, and my, my dad heard me because I was crying, and he came in, and he asked me what was wrong, and I told him, I said, Dad, it's not working out for me. Like, people don't like me. I don't like them. Things have not gone easy since we've come here, and I told him all the reasons that I just felt like I was such a loner, and he felt sorry for me, and so the day before my freshman year, he put me in the car, and he drove me to the mall, and he gave me an extreme makeover. <laughs> And that day I got new clothes, new haircut, new shoes, new everything, same insecure kid on the inside. I got made over on the outside, and I walked into the American high school, and instantly I went from, like, geek to chic, baby, overnight. I mean, I walked in. I went from, like, Abdul to Julio. You know I'm just saying? Like, all of a sudden, I found out what you know. You don't have to be from Iran to know this. I found out that um, people will sometimes accept you for the label that you wear or the car that you drive more than the character of who you really are on the inside. And my high school years became these years where I just learned how to play that game. I learned how to play high school. Like, I learned how to dump the right girl right before she could dump me to climb the social ladder. I learned how to be cold to certain people, to be perceived as cool to certain people. I learned how to play high school. And on paper, it just seemed like everything was better. But it wasn't. 
Because on the outside, it just felt like everything was better. On the outside, it felt like I had friends, but they were fabricated friends. Because if, if that's what it takes, the dog and pony show to get them, that's what it takes to keep them. And for years and years, that was me. By the time I graduated from high school, it just seemed like everything was good, but it wasn't. Because honestly, I just felt like I, it was more about performing than about actually being somebody. And I graduated from high school by this time in Alabama. I graduated from high school popular, but I graduated with a 1.9 GPA. <laughs> That's about as bad as it gets. And I just couldn't, I just had nowhere to go. You can't even go to Michigan with that. That's about as bad as it gets, right? So I had like nowhere to go. And so I barely, barely graduate. And about two months after high school, one night I'm in the car with the only friend I had who hadn't, who hadn't like gone off to college yet. And we're sitting there. This is like 10 minutes before midnight in front of my house. And, and to be very honest, we're, we're sharing a joint together, me and my buddy. And so we're passing this joint back and forth. And, and my buddy looked over at me and he goes, man, why are you so down tonight? You're normally like the life of the party and you just seem really down. And I, and I explained to him, I said, man, I hug like nine people goodbye tonight that are going off to this college and this college. And you and I just like partied so much in high school that we never actually thought about like academics. And I told him, you know, like, I'm just down about that. And and my buddy looks over at me and he goes, um, well, you know, the high school is not like the only place where a bunch of teenagers hang out. He goes, you ought to come with me tomorrow to my church because we have this thing called the youth group. And I'm surprised he's inviting me to church because he's literally handing me a joint while he's inviting me to church. He's like, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm like, you go to church? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm a Baptist, you know. And so we're just like having this conversation and I'm just blown away. He's inviting me to church. And and, and, and I told him, I said, man, there's no way I'm going to church with you. And he said, why? And I said, because I hate religion. He turns down the music. He goes, why would you hate religion? And I said, man, you, in all the time we've known each other, you've never talked to me about God or church. And I'm shocked that you even go. And he goes, yeah. And I said, man, I saw religion destroy my country when I was a kid. And I know I'm like Shiite by heritage, but I'm not even much of that. And I told him all the reasons I didn't want to go to church. But instead of giving up, he tried one last thing. He named the five prettiest girls from my high school. And when he got to the fifth girl and he was like, they all go to my church, I was motivated to visit instantly. <laughs> but I told him, I said, man, uh, you've got me talked into it, but there's no way that my dad is going to let me go. And he said, why? And I explained to him, I said, look, my dad is a Muslim by heritage as well. He's not going to want me going to a Christian church. There's no way he's going to let me. And I told him all these different things, but he just wouldn't let up. And so I got out of the car. He got out with me. We go uh, to the house. And, and he's like, just ask you that if I can go. And just to get my buddy off my back, my buddy stands at the door and I walk down the hallway and I knocked on my parents' bedroom door and I said, hey, mom and dad, it's midnight. I'm home. I'm safe. You don't need to get out of bed. With the door closed between us, I said, I, my, my friend wants to know uh, something. And I know you're going to say no. Just say no loud enough so he'll hear me, so that he, hear you, so that he'll leave me alone. And then I popped the question. I said, hey, he wants to know if I can go with him tomorrow to church, a Christian church. But instead of saying no, my dad's quiet for a couple seconds. And then he yells really loud, what is the name of it? And I have no idea what he's asking, but he's asking the name of the church. So my buddy who's down the hallway stoned, all right, hears that. And he yells really loud, Shades. And Shades was shorthand for Shades Mountain Baptist. And as soon as my dad hears that, my dad goes, I know those people. And I'm kind of confused that I don't get an immediate no. But what I didn't know was that about two weeks before that Saturday night, 
when I'm standing there and I'm asking you if I can go to church, there were these people from this church, the same church that my buddy just yelled out the name of, from this church, Shades Mountain Baptist, who had come to my father's French restaurant. My dad had opened up a French restaurant. I know it's confusing, but stay with me, all right? So my dad had opened up this French restaurant. And about two weeks before that Saturday night, this guy who was the pastor of the church and this guy who was uh, the worship pastor of the church and a couple others had come to my dad's restaurant to eat. And they'd seen how my father was shorthanded on wait staff, but instead of complaining about the bad service, they'd quietly gotten up during the lunch rush and waited on tables at my dad's restaurant. And then they went back the next day. Aubrey went back the next day, the worship pastor, went back the next day with a couple of other folks, and they helped my dad the entire lunch rush, and then they went back the next day, and then they invited my dad to choir practice. My military dad, who doesn't even like music, all right, got invited to choir practice. And because kindness is a superpower, my dad went to choir practice. And at the end of choir practice, Aubrey stood there and said, hey, this is my friend, Mr. Nasser. He needs some help for this few days at his restaurant. And I've told him we'd be honored to help him. There's a piece of paper going around, and I need you to sign up for different shifts to help him. And for two weeks, these Christians had parachuted in to my dad's restaurant, Cafe de France, and they had served him as waiters and busboys. And God in his sovereignty had used that to massage my dad's heart to soften my dad's heart. So fast forward two weeks later, I'm kind of stoned. I'm just asking to go to church. And instead of saying no, he goes, what is the name of it? And my buddy yells out the name of the exact same church of the people that had been helping him out. In a city, by the way, that has over 1,100 churches. And my dad yells all of a sudden, I know those people. And then he finishes the sentence. You can go there, but only there. And I'm just telling you, if there is an earthly hero Not the ultimate hero, which is God himself. But if there's an earthly hero in my story, it's about a bunch of Christians who are very Christ-like. A bunch of believers who are believable. A bunch of people who say they were the people of grace who are gracious, graceful. And my dad allowed me to go to church because a bunch of Christians showed up at his restaurant and served him. Because I'm just telling you, kindness, being nice, considerate, serving. Soften the people's hearts who might even hate religion, but they'll like you because you're nice. So Sunday morning, I got up, put on my chinos, and go to church. I walked in this church. As soon as I walked in the church, they saw me coming, man. These teenagers saw me coming. And I walked up to my friends, and every other word out of my mouth was a cuss word because that's how we were outside the church. Except they're saying, bless you. Nobody's sneezing. They're playing church. I'm just kind of weirded out by them. And so I go by myself and I sit in the front row. And as soon as I sat down, I looked up and I saw Larry Nell. And everybody in our town knew Larry Nell. And he's just kind of walking towards me. Now, let me tell you about Larry Nell. Larry Nell didn't go to my high school. He went to our rival high school. And everybody in our town knew him because he was a football legend as a high school player. He looked like a sumo wrestler. He was half Korean, half American, all right? But this guy would just hit you so hard that your spleen would bleed for a month, all right? I mean, he was that kid on the football field. But he also, at every nook and turn, every time somebody would put a microphone in front of him after a high school football game, would talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus, give God the glory for his abilities and all these different things. And about a year before that Sunday morning when I was sitting at his church, Larry Noah had walked up to me at a party and tried to talk to me about God, but I'd made fun of him. I'd laughed at him. I kind of ridiculed what he was saying. 
And he walked away. And a year later, I'm sitting at his church, and he's kind of like walking towards me. And I thought, wow, I was so nice. I, was, I mean, I was so rude to him the day that I met him. But he's like going to be, you know, probably rude back to me because our first time that we met was not good. And he walks right over and he goes, I remember you. And that's exactly what I was afraid of. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm just so glad you're here. Because can I sit beside you? I'm like, just don't sit on me, bro, whatever. And, you know, and he sits down beside me and the pastor gets up and he goes, get out your Bibles. And I didn't have a Bible. I haven't been to the hotels yet to steal one from the Gideons or whatever. So I'm kind of feeling left out. And then all of a sudden I feel something on my lap. And Larry had quietly opened up his Bible and placed it on my lap so I wouldn't feel left out. And the whole time the Sunday school lesson's going on, I kept thinking, I'm so mean to this guy, right? Why is he being nice to me? I didn't understand grace. You know what grace is? Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. We call it unmerited, undeserving love favor. So I've been mean to him. And typically, you know, you're mean, you get mean back. And I was rude to him. Typically, you're rude, you get rude back. But he was grace. He gave me the opposite. I was rude to him. But yet when it was his chance, he was kind to me. He was loving to me, patient with me. And when the Sunday school lesson was over, he stood up, looked right at me and he goes, I got to tell you something. I didn't listen to one thing that guy was teaching. He goes, all I kept thinking about is you being here. I said, dude, I didn't listen to one thing that guy was teaching either. All I kept thinking about is I was so rude to you. Why are you being nice to me? He goes, dude, are you kidding? I'm so glad you're here. Because I'm just pumped you're here. He goes, you got to come back tonight. He goes, we have this uh, rally tonight. I'll never forget what he said. He said, this, there's this Christian band called Russia. And he said, they're from Russia. And they're Christian. I was like, that just sounds so cheesy. That sounds so bad. He goes, man, they're going to be amazing. And there's this youth rally tonight. And that's why we're all meeting in the gym this morning to get ready for this thing. And, and I had nothing to do, but I was just full of pride. I go, man, I got stuff to do tonight. And he looked at me and he goes, come on, dude, come tonight. I said, man, I got stuff to do tonight. You know what he said to me? He looked right at me and he goes, if you don't want to come back tonight, it's all good. He goes, we'll come see you. And I had no idea what he meant, but they had this thing called visitation. <laughs> And 17 teenagers the next night on Monday night showed up at my house. They were like, can we come in for a few minutes? And they lied because three hours later, they were still in my house. And they came to my house and they explained to me. I'll never forget. We sat down and they explained to me that God had an incredible plan for my life. They explained to me that it wasn't just coincidental or it wasn't just by accident that I had come to their church. And they explained to me that they had a great news to share with me. They told me that God loved me just the way that I was, but he loved me too much to leave me that way. And that God wanted to change me. That God wanted to do this incredible work in my life. And that God had sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago down on earth to live this perfect, sinless life, this righteous life. And then after living a perfect, sinless life, that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And so I was the sinner, but he was sinless. But in the courtroom of life, even though I'm 100% guilty of sin, they told me that Jesus had come and lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death as the great sacrificial lamb, as the great substitute to take my sin on, to pay the penalty for my sin. And they told me that if I would accept what Jesus did, that I could find salvation and forgiveness. And their pitch was good. I mean, they told me that God so loved David Nasser that he gave his one and only son, that if I would believe in what Jesus did, who he is and what he did, as enough 
right? To satisfy God's perfect standard, to remove the sin barrier by paying the penalty for it that he paid. That if I would believe in him, I would not perish but have eternal life, that I would find salvation. And when they shared that, when they, they told me that, and I said, David, do you want to give your life to him? I just looked at him and I said, guys, I'm sure he loves you. You seem like really good people. But you don't know how bad I've been. And they told me, Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people becoming alive. And they told me how they were bad. They were bad. And then it wasn't about how bad or how little bad, but, but no one is good enough. And when they told me that and they said, David, if, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you need to. I just looked at them and I said, it's not going to happen. Thanks for coming. There's the door, basically. And on their way out, one of them did say to me, we'll see you next week. And I had no idea what they meant. But I'm just telling you, we were the Iranians, but we got terrorized by a youth group, y'all. Because for the next seven to eight Monday nights in a row, we're like, hi, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming. And they would come to my house, and every Monday night, they would share with me the same truth, that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. That there was only one way for me to really find salvation, really find, you know, hope in my life. And they kept telling me that his name was Jesus, and they kept telling me that, telling me that. And every Monday night, they would come to my house, and they would talk to me about God. But honestly, I just kept thinking to myself, I don't want to be religious. And I didn't understand it. I would tell them, I'd be like, man, I got, I'm kind of quasi-Muslim. I'm not, like, I'm not even Christian. And they'd be like, yeah, Christianity is awesome. And, and I was like, I've seen that on TV, like on TBN, people with weird hair sitting around weirder furniture, you know, trying to work the uneducated for money. That's how I saw it. And they kept telling me, like, listen, quit looking at all the people that are, like, not a good representative, like, not a good, start looking at Christ. He's the one who'll never fail you. And they would, they would go to the, open up a Bible and they would show me what Jesus had done and show me what Jesus had said. And over and over again, it was always about him. And every Monday night, they would come to my house and talk to me about religion. I mean, talk to me about Jesus. And I would talk to them about religion and they would go, it's not about religion, it's about Jesus. And they would keep, they, we kept going back and forth. And for seven weeks, that was the case. And then, one night, I was at their church. And I was sitting there and because they would drag me to church. I say drag me, but I wanted to go <laughs> because love is a magnet. And I knew they had something that I didn't have. I knew I was missing whatever they were not missing. But I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was sitting at their church, and the preacher was preaching, and he wasn't cool like your pastor. Your pastor looks like a model. He looks like he should be at the marathon, right, in the rain. He looks like that guy. All right, and, uh, but this pastor at this church was not cool like your pastor. I mean, he was like, you know, three-piece suit, uh, he was sweating out of places that don't even have a gland, all right, you know, and King James over only, you know, comb over, you know, that guy. And, and, and he preached, but honestly, he wasn't cool and he wasn't hip, but he was kind of kind and he was honest. And he talked that night about how um, people needed God in their life. And he felt like somebody had snuck this man like a sticky note with all of me on it. Because <laughs> almost everything he was saying felt like, how does he know that about me? That's, that's exactly what's missing. That's exactly the question that I have. And then he gave this invitation, and it was literally what it's called, an invitation. He invited people who had never given their life over to God, who had never really surrendered over to God, to come down an aisle and to give their life to God. And I remember during the invitation, as, like, music was playing and people were coming down to the front thinking, all my life I've been terrorized by religion, and now some guy's trying to terrorize me down an aisle. <laughs> just so he could feel good about himself. And so during the invitation, I hit the aisle too, but instead of coming forward, I went the other way. 
And I thought, I'm never coming back again. I'm not letting these Christians back in my house tomorrow night. We're done. They're starting to get to me. And I walked to the back, and I got in my car, and I drove home. And when I got in my house, my parents were out of town that night. It just felt like um, that same weirdness that was at the church had followed me home. I now believe, can I just tell you, I personally believe now that it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God was working on me. And he's not contained in church buildings with steeples, right? He's everywhere at all times. I believe that. And so now looking back at it in hindsight, like I walk in my house to try to get away from God, but you can't get away from a God who's everywhere. And I walked in and I, I just remember feeling like something's going on. And I started reading the Bibles because these, these Christians kept bringing me Bibles. I had every version, ESV, NIV, King James, Precious Moments. They just kept bringing me Bibles. Some of them didn't even have my name on them. They got them from the lost and found with other people's names on them. And they just kept bringing me Bibles. And so I just I remember I just got one of them in my room and I started reading it. And um, honestly, when I started reading it, can I just tell you, it was so boring. I remember reading the Bible. It was like in the beginning Taoist, Maoist. I was like, I can't believe billions of people have based their life on this book. This is so boring. I didn't love the author of the books. I didn't love the book. And so I kept flipping through it. And eventually, God just started to speak to me through the Bible. I started to, to, to read it. And I read about this guy named Jesus in the Bible who is walking on water. How many of you know that story? Anybody know that story? Cool. Maybe somebody flannel grafted for you in VBS. Or some of y'all don't know who VBS is or what VBS is, Vacation Bible School. You don't know that story. If you don't know that story, that's how I felt. I'd never heard the story, right? So in real time, I'm reading it. And in the Bible, there's a story about, like, these guys who are in a boat, all right, in the Sea of Galilee, in this body of water. And on a stormy night, Jesus starts, decides to go to them. And so he just starts walking on water towards them. And, and, and as, as, he's, as he's walking on the water towards them, as I'm reading my Bible, I read how Jesus tells this one guy named Peter to step out of the boat and to come towards him. And I'm just telling you, that same Bible that was boring 10 minutes before, all of a sudden became exciting. All of a sudden came alive. And God said to me, you've stepped out for so many other things. And I just felt like Jesus was saying to me, not to Peter as the story that I was reading, but Jesus was saying to me, come. So I just stepped out, not physically, spiritually, emotionally. I just stepped out. I closed my eyes and I said, I'm stepping out. I'm stepping out of my excuses. I'm stepping out of religion gone wrong. I'm if Jesus, you're calling me to give my life to you, to trust you, I'm stepping out. And I was 18 years old when I just decided that I was going to leave everything behind, step out of myself, step out of my excuses, step out of all these circumstances, and I was just going to trust that he was calling me. And I didn't even know what all he was calling me to, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm yours. I believe you, Jesus, to be God, and I want you to be my God. And I gave my life over to him when I was 18. And two hours later, my parents came home, and my, my dad heard me crying in my bedroom, and I told them what I'd done. I said, I gave my life to Jesus, and this happened tonight, and and all of a sudden, my parents became instantly very devout Muslims. They were like, you cannot be a Christian. We're Muslims. Like, we are? It's kind of like that coat in your closet you never wear until somebody wants to give it away. And you're like, oh, I want it. And my dad didn't care about religion until all of a sudden I was switching. And a couple weeks later, I got kicked out of the house for becoming a Christian. And then five months after I was a Christian, one night my sister called me on the phone weeping and uh, through Campus Crusade on her campus, God had brought him, I mean, brought my sister 
to Christianity. And then five months after that, my mother called me one night, really loud on the phone. Tonight, I become a Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. That's how she rolled, all right? So then my mom became a Christian. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin became a Christian. And two and a half years later, my dad bent to me and yelled out the name of Jesus. And people always hear my story and they go, it's crazy what God has done to this Muslim family's life. And I always go, yeah, it is. But at the end of the day, my story is not any more important than your story. Because you don't have to be from Iran, right, to come to the foot of the cross and to come to the end of yourself and say, I am done with religion. I am done with excuses. I just know that I need I need a savior because I can't save myself. I know that I can't be good enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't write a tithe check big enough. I can't sing loud enough. I just know that this is a gift that's been given to me. I need to give my life over to you. And when I was 18 and two months old, can I just tell you the most pivotal part of my story is I gave my life over to Christ. And one by one, I've seen God bring my family to him as well. And I'm so thankful for the the power of salvation that's offered to me. People always hear my story and they go, boy, it must have been tough for you as a Muslim family. And I go, not half as tough as it is for all these church people I talk to, have all the right answers, sing all the right songs, know all the right things, and even claim to be Christians because they grew up in that heritage. But they don't really know Jesus as Lord and as Savior of their life. And that's my hope, that they would come to the knowledge of him. Can I pray for us just wherever you are? Can I just pray for you? And so, Lord, I thank you, God, that we all have a story to tell. And I'm convinced that there are those in this room this morning who hear me testify to what you have done in and through the circumstances of my life. And maybe they haven't gone through a revolution. Maybe they didn't escape from a country. But God, see your handiwork of provision and mercy and love, God, in the circumstances of their life. Maybe it was because when they were a kid, they saw a parent pass away of cancer. Or they saw the revolution of a divorce in their family just destroy so much happiness and peace. Maybe they saw the circumstances of their life just be something so much bigger than them and and I pray that even this morning that they would see that maybe sometimes when they thought, God, you'd abandoned them or you were hurting them, that maybe, God, you were actually holding them. And we pray that, God, people would come to that knowledge that uh, you're for them. That, God, you've never given up on them. And I pray that they would be drawn to you in a powerful way. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We hope Horizon is a place you can call home and really a place you can ask questions to see if this message of Jesus, this message of grace, this message of a relationship with God, not a religion of God, is something you might want to check out. Maybe today you don't know a lot about Islam. Maybe the story of Islam and, and things that have come up today is something you're interested in. If you download our app at horizonspacecc.com, we've done lots of messages on that. One is called CSI Religion. I do a whole week on Islam, kind of showing uh, the, the interactions, the overlap, and the distinctions between Christianity and Islam. Also, my good friend uh, Majad Dabdu, who's a practicing Muslim, has been on stage twice with me. 
One time we dialogued the difference between Allah and, and Jehovah. Another time we talked about whether or not Jesus really died and really was raised from the dead. So if those are interesting to you, you can get on our app, click on past messages, type in Islam, and there's lots of messages there, real conversations that we've had with folks over the years. Because we believe that Jesus' words are powerful. They really do create a place of home in all of us. And one of the things Jesus says is to honor your father and your mother. So next week, we're going to get a chance to do that on Mother's Day. So in case you're thinking about what you're going to do this week, buy a gift. Um, because seven days from now, we have Mother's Day, and we're going to cherish our moms at all three services. And then we also, Jesus has something fascinating he says. He says, you know, life can be tough, and there's not always kind people out there doing nice things. He says, I send you as sheep among wolves. There's some pretty nasty people out there too. So he says, I want you to be as shrewd as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. How can we still be kind on the inside, but also not let people bulldoze us? So um, if you've ever had people, whether it's a boss or a coworker, or been in a kind of a dysfunctional relationship, this Wednesday, women only um, for this particular one, but we're going to do a, a workshop called How to Deal with and Disarm Emotional Manipulators in the Workplace. So we'd love to have you be part of that and see how do we really play out this idea of truth, but also grace in our relationships. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.